Thank you very much for the flattering introduction. And thanks to all the workshop participants, because this has been a really great afternoon, really interesting. And far in advance of anything I could uh, imagine being able to say. So I'll just make some general comments, which I hope might have some bearing on the question of extractive cultures. So the earth compels was the phrase I chose for my title. And it comes from a poem by Louis Magnice. Uh, the sunlight on the garden hardens and grows cold. We cannot cage the minute within its nets of gold. When all is told, we cannot ask for pardon. Our freedom as freelances advances towards its end. The earth compels. Upon it, sonnets and birds descend, and soon, my friend, we shall have no time for dances. Now, this poem was written in 1938, and it's about the feeling of doom and destruction closing in when people saw the advent of the Second World War. So, the earth compels upon it sonnets and birds descend, seems to suggest that Magnice thought that destruction, as epitomized by a world war, was the antithesis of creativity. It kills the birds, it kills the sonnets. We have no time for dances. But I want to start somewhere else. I want to start with a letter that Karl Marx wrote to his father in 1837. Um, he says that at moments of change, the individual becomes lyrical because every metamorphosis is partly a swan song partly the overture of a great new poem that is trying to find its right proportions amid brilliant colours that are not yet distinct. This is quoted in the Professor of German here at Oxford, <coughs> a book by S.S. Prower, Karl Marx and World Literature. Now, Karl Marx was 19 when he wrote this, and as you can tell from his rather um, romantic language, he was a man who was at the time writing lots of romantic poems himself to his fiancée, Janie von Westphalen. But in this one sentence, there are three ideas that I think are really fundamental to a general way of approaching popular <coughs> culture, including popular culture in Africa, which I think are worth exploring and hanging on to. The first idea, the most salient one in this formulation, is the idea that change, and especially drastic change amounting to metamorphosis, is generative. It gives rise to new artistic or expressive forms. And of course this was developed too much and elaborated to a much greater extent in Marx's mature writings and became the basis of the whole tradition of Marx's sociology of literature. 
in Lukács, Bertin, Goldman, uh, Eagleton, and all their successors. Actually, Bertin and Medvedev <coughs> specified that what is involved when well, metamorphosis or drastic change is generative. What's involved is the creation not just of new ideas, but of new genres. And I think that's really important, that new forms have to be invented in order to cope with new experiences, with new realities, <coughs> new lenses. Martin and Medvedev thought of genre as a kind of lens through which you look at reality in a particular way. Uh, it allows you to see some things and prevents you from seeing other things. So if you want to cope with new experience, you need a new framework, you need new lenses. So change as generative is a very fundamental idea in the hi histories of popular culture that we have um, as our field. And within, within this history, I think you can identify what you might call hot spots. There are kind of sites of change which are particularly generative, which attract a particular kind of creative energy. And times and places where innovation, um, new ideas were particularly strongly present. And I'm saying this because I want to suggest that mining, mining sites, mining labor relations, um, and the wider populations which got drawn into mining enterprises were hotspots of that kind in African uh, sociocultural history. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, he says that Every metamorphosis is partly a swan song, partly the overture of a great new poem. Now, setting aside the rather inflated language, understandable in a romantic 19-year-old, what we can draw from this is that drastic change destroys older forms or encourages people to discard and to... To, to get rid of older forms, <coughs> older ideas, older institutions. In, in fact, we create new forms in order to say goodbye to old forms or to say goodbye to ourselves as we change into something else, which is what Marx was thinking of. In Africa, the last 200 years have been a history of such intense compacted transformation that new creative forms springing up in continual surges of invention have always contained within themselves a swan song, a farewell, a lament for the loss of older traditions. They're always in there. It's not that you can just discard the old and produce something new. The new forms almost always recapitulate and are nostalgic for what they are in the very act of superseding. We can see that in so many genres, which I might have a, a time to look at in a moment. 
thirdly, and actually most productively from my point of view, is Marx's evocation in this sentence of the tentative emergence and experimental nature of the new form that is trying to find its right proportions. It hasn't found them yet. He's interested in how new things come into being rather than taking art forms as fait accompli and then trying to contextualize them and analyze them and see what they tell us about the conditions of their production. He wants to start from the other side and see how they emerge. What are the enabling and constraining contexts which permit some things to emerge and others not? So Marx wants to start, and this is going on to his later work, he wants to start on the ground, <coughs> in the real lives of men, as he puts it. And he wants to trace how specific historical moments, constrained by circumstances, but also remaking those circumstances through their very acts of production, people try things out. They grope for new forms which are adequate to their experience. And of course, sometimes the groping doesn't come up with anything. We need to look at the forms that failed, the forms that did not catch on, the forms that were inchoate and never fully realised. If we want to understand the ones that were accomplished and passed on and spread and uh, accepted as works. So let me now turn to mining as um, sites, as a site, or as many sites of transformation. Things that scenes of metamorphosis. Well, I don't need to say anything, I'm sure, to this audience about colonial industrial mining, because I'm sure you all know far more about it than I do. But what strikes me, looking across some of the <coughs> classic literature on this subject, is simply how incredibly violent these transformations were. Mining is violence. First of all, the processes themselves, the actual work that was done, was done with incredible, it involves incredible force, speed, and noise. There's this uh, memoir by a man called Louis Nesbitt. I don't know if people know that, that book. Uh, it's called Gold Fever. And it was an Italian, British mining engineer who worked on the Rand from 1912 to 1915. So it was there at the kind of early period of South African gold mining. So in this memoir, uh, Gold Fever, he describes, first of all, the shafts, the mine shafts, thousands of feet deep, and the enormous metal cages which carried 80 workers at a time down to the bottom of these shafts, shaking and rattling as it fell, and then bouncing at each station as it went down to, to let out the workers and to take in um, the 
exactly or he describes the gigantic machines have I got a slide of this is that visible yeah. that's some um, mine workers around 1900 so around this time that Nesbitt is talking about talks about the ear splitting noise a deafening crackling of rapid blows when the chisel becomes stuck the machine could not turn it a hissing and shuddering a crunching and whistling most uneasy and terrifying he says and the miners themselves become part of this relentless and incessant operation of the machine. So he describes the way they're brutally kept up to speed so that they can continue to function um, in a machine-like manner. At the end of the long train comes the threatening boss boy laying about him with a large stiff piece of rubber tubing, a formidable weapon. So the men, the workers are being um, herded through the mine um, to keep pace with the machinery rather than the other way around. So the process, processes themselves are violent. But then the impact on the earth is incredibly destructive. Rosalind Morris wrote a really evocative, thought-provoking piece in the, in the journal Transition where she, she does evoke the sound, the noise in the mines, but she also describes the sinkholes that could suddenly appear in the areas around the mines when the inner workings have become waterlogged or have collapsed. So entire houses could suddenly disappear. You could go home in the evening and find your house had fallen into a giant chasm. Mining emitted smoke and poisons into the atmosphere, which... Um, was it David? Was this? Yes, David was describing for oil extraction in, in the Niger Delta, but also poisonous air produced by gold mining. Even today, if you spend too much time in Johannesburg, you begin, I feel anyway, I begin to feel ill, I begin to feel unwell, and I tried to find out why. People say, well, it's a cyanide. It's the cyanide that was used to separate the gold from the ore well, after the process was over it was just allowed to leach into the ground and it stayed there and it's still poisoning the atmosphere so it's violent to the earth and of course what has attracted most anthropological and historical attention is that it's violent to the social fabric it's the enormous demand for cheap labour which was not readily available in places where subsistent agriculture meant that people did not have to subject themselves to badly paid and backbreaking work. This enormous demand for cheap labour labor sucked people in from wide regions far from the mine sites themselves. This is true of South Africa, Zambia, Congo, they all drew in populations from neighbouring countries, hurling people of different languages and ethnic groups together um, and forcing new patterns of cohabitation and communication upon them, including new languages like the uh, version of Bemba, which became called 
key copper belty because it was both among copper belties, kind of lingua franca developed by the mine workers on the copper belt. So all this violence, all this destruction, but I'm talking about generative sites. So this is the first thing that struck me as something maybe we need to, to think about, to understand better, is how do we get the, this destructive violence and this intense generative capacity, this creation of new cultural forms um, into, one, into one frame. Of course, there have been lots of uh, ways of looking at the, this, the simultaneous kind of twin-like existence of destruction and creation in many different dimensions, including religious dimensions. Um, it's a property not just of mining, but of capitalism itself. All that is solid melts into air. Um, it's a shame that Ramon had to go because I was going to quote a song. No. He's still there. I know. He said he was going. <laughs> he said you were going. You wrote it. Okay, so with, with joy, I'll quote this song. I'm not criticizing you. I'm singing a song for you. I'm quoting a song because I can't sing. By Caetano Veloso, a song about São Paulo. This is from Marina as well. He speaks of da força da grana que ergue e destrói coisas belas. The power of cash which raises and destroys beautiful things. So it's this very Marxist idea, very fundamental to Marxist interpretation of capitalism, that what is destroying is simultaneously unleashing incredible powers and forces which can be creative. So now I want to look at some of the dimensions of this, these scenes of cultural transformation, which are very, very visible and striking in these hotspots, which, which are mining sites, but which I also think apply to popular culture generally across the board. So if we look at the way it works in mining, it may also be illuminating to wider fields of popular cultural production. So the first is this idea I've already mentioned of new forms being a farewell to, to the old, but also containing within them elements of the old, rec recuperating and preserving memories, nostalgia for the old. And the example I have to give is, I won't show you that slide, is uh, the fella, which are the uh, a genre of songs of the Sutu miners who migrated from the Sutu to the Rand uh, from the beginning of gold mining in South Africa up till quite recently. Um, Difela was new. It was one of the new things uh, 
inst uh, produced, um, made possible by the experience of migrant labor. The songs are called the songs of the inveterate travelers because they're songs that were generated in the course of the journey from Lesotho homes to the mine compounds. And this was, especially in the early days, long and perilous journey. In fact, the earliest migrants migrated to Kimberley, to the diamond mines, and a lot of the songs refer to mines as Kimberley, as if all mines were Kimberley. So it's a, it's a, a genre that came into being with the advent of mining in the 1860s. So it's new in the sense that it's created to speak of this experience of walking and later going in the train to the mines. But it's old in the sense that it draws on the genre the toko, which was the, the chiefly praise poetry and initiation self-praise poetry of Basutu, which was um, a long-standing tradition. So they drew on elements of the toko and incorporated them into the fella, but they changed the entire format and style from a fairly closed, fairly formulaic, fa fairly hierarchical genre to one that was like a long, unrolling autobiography, poetic autobiography, to which the miners could add new elements as their experiences increased, as they went to new places, or as they had new thoughts, and which they could partly pre-compose and which they could partly improvise in performance. So here's an example of, this seems to me like one of capturing a very moment when the new is being incorporated and domesticated. It's about the train. I want to praise the train. And it captures this experience of seeing the train for the first time. When it's a new experience, it's astonishing. A newcomer, I was amazed. I was standing high on the platform. I was looking this way and that way. On the ears it had blinkers, water pipe on its head, water tank on its shoulders, on its back it was carrying, carrying coal. And it goes on, he's describing these extraordinary things. But in the, in the next bit of the poem, he says, it left us behind in the valley, but it left, left its um, travelers behind in the valley. It will have to come back to collect us, our train. So in that moment, there, he's capturing the train as part of their collective experience. It now belongs to them. So it's retaining a nostalgia for the toko and for the older language of chieftaincy uh, poetry, heroic poetry, the poetry of herding, um, um, fighting uh, cattle raiders, but it transfers it into the context of the heroic journey to the mine. 
So new saying farewell to the old, that's the first thing. Second thing is the idea which we already heard discussed this afternoon. I'm trying to remember which paper it was in. Um, the idea that the, the idea of tribal, traditional ethnicity is given more salience and more definition in these contexts, mining compounds, where people of different ethnic and linguistic origin, origins are held together. And this was formally uh, fostered and encouraged by the mining um, managers who put ethnic groups into dormitories together so they would be with their homeboys and encouraged dance competitions where each dance troupe would be representing one ethnic group. So it was encouraged, but at the same time what was emerging, I think it was, was it Enid who talked about this? Yes, at the same time what's <coughs> emerging is the idea that all these so-called tribal dances are comparable, that people dancing them occupy parallel slots, they can be evaluated as a competition on an equal footing. So it produces a kind of supra-ethnic form, language form, form of uh, an idiom, way of thinking about tradition and ethnicity, which is supra-ethnic and supra-traditional. And uh, a very well-known uh, and pioneering and rather brilliant study of this is uh, J.C. Mitchell's study of the Kalela dance, um, 1956, where he describes how the dance troops in uh, the, I think it's the Luantia compound in, in northern Rhodesia, in the, in the, the Zambian copper belts, um, each dance troupe were these people in who you know <coughs> mimic military and police uh, troops. They they have brass bands. They have official roles in their dance societies, such as the president and the secretary and the treasurer. Um, it's very regimented. It looks very much like a mimicry what Terence Ranger called part emulation and part um, mockery of the colonial presence, military and police. Um, so each dance troupe of this kind belongs to a particular place of origin and represents a particular ethnic linguistic homeland. But at the same time, the Kalela dance was not the property of one group. It was danced all over northern Zambia, um, I mean northern Rhodesia. Um, the dance troops competed against each other and they were all dancing <coughs> what they all called Kalela, even though they were from different places of origin. And in some of their lyrics, they would boast about this very kind of cosmopolitan um, link it, the, the, the ability they had 
to interact with people of other groups. They can boast, I sing in Hanga, I sing in Luba, I sing in Zulu and Sutu. So while they're a, a local troupe at the same time, they're advertising their own ability to negotiate and navigate a multi-ethnic context. <coughs> so James Ferguson talks about the different options being cosmopolitan and being local, which were options that could be chosen by people in these compounds uh, according to their preference. But in Kalela and related forms, what you seem to get is both at once. They're being cosmopolitan and they're affirming their localness and their home place, their home origin, in the same genre. <coughs> so mixing um, and separation, that's this, the, the second point I wanted to, to bring out. But this hurling together of populations, which is highly generative of new forms, is simultaneously affirming distinctiveness and transcending it. And that's very, very applicable to popular cultural forms in urban spaces and heterogeneous spaces all over sub-Saharan Africa. It's not only associated with mining, but it's been particularly well studied in the case of mine compounds. Third uh, theme which I want to bring out, I'm actually not going to dwell on it because Again, it, it's about traveling and about how genres and forms move through space. And when we talk about the field of African popular culture, people often mean in a sense of a mosaic, piece together a picture of a field by bringing examples drawn from lots of different places after which you attempt some kind of generalization. Not that many people have tried to generalize about African popular culture, but those who have, have often adopted this method. But a more organic and potentially more rewarding method is to trace actual popular cultural forms as they move and try to understand why they move and how they move through space, how new versions of the same thing keep appearing and being adapted and reformulated, what is it that enables this kind of trans transmission and transition and transformation? I was going to give the example of the Beni dance as studied by Terence Ranger, which spread over the whole of Eastern Africa and of which the Kalela dance was one <coughs> manifestation, but we also have uh, the Mganda dance, the Malipenga dance, and lots of others, lots of other variants. However, I don't need <coughs> to do this because um, Enid, again, has given us um, an absolutely brilliant example in uh, Congolese rumba and other uh, forms which were you know, the conditions which made it possible for these forms to be spread, to, to be taken up in different places. Why did so many Congolese musicians go to Tanzania or to Zambia? There were particular conditions which fostered and made, made successful this spread of cultural forms. So it's not just that cultural forms kind of emanate and 
spread. There are mechanisms and contexts and facilitating um, uh, factors which enable some to spread and others not. So let me get to my fourth uh, theme, which is the most general one of all. And this is about the artisanal. In the last paper we heard, in the, in, no, in David's paper we heard about the artisanal oil extraction in the Niger Delta. Actually, I've got a picture of that. I'll, I'll go back in a second. Incredibly dangerous. Tapping oil out of the um, pipes or stealing it in other ways, boiling it over fires. Incredibly risky, but it's also a sign of a kind of do-it-yourself <coughs> capacity to make things on the ground in a small scale um, using techniques, tools, uh, methods which are locally devised and developed. And this is a theme that's become quite prominent in studies of mining recently, artisanal mining. And it has a real resonance for approaches to African popular culture more generally. Because artisanal mining seems to kind of lurk on the outskirts of big international and highly capitalized industrial mining, or in its interstices, or in its aftermath, after Jekamine um, collapses and closes down. And that's actually become semi-official, as I understand it. Small-scale, little enterprises are allowed to carry on doing shallow mining with basic tools and techniques, working over the sites previously abandoned by big companies. So shallow digs, riverbeds, um, in some cases it's only young men who are involved. In other sites we see women and children, uh, uh, women, boys and girls doing different tasks. So now it's not so much a profession as another option in the endless patchwork of, of uh, making do of débrouillage, which people in precarious situations are piecing together, a living. And these artisanal mining enterprises have involved a lot of creative innovation. At the level of social relations and codes of conduct, um, there's a, an article which many people may be familiar with by Thilo Gretz on forms of friendship among young artisanal gold miners in makeshift camps in northern Benin, the Republic of Benin. So they developed new codes of friendship, protocols of how to relate to previously unknown young men because they preferred working with friends rather than with kin 
or people from the same place of, you know, same hometown, because these people, the kin or people from people with previous connections, might be able to exert a gerontocratic or seniority privileges or other kind of hierarchical um, leverage to deprive the individual artisanal miner of his find. If he finds uh, a diamond, they may use their power, to their privilege, their rights over him to get it off him. So they devise new forms of cooperation and relationship with previously unrelated people. So that's a kind of creativity of, of inventing social <coughs> protocols. There's creativity at the level of self-representation and performance of success, the kind of sapper-like um, displays of clothing, consumer goods, bodily style. And this has also been described in the context of artisanal mining on the Congolese copper belt by Timothy <coughs> Macquarie. Then at the level of localised cosmology of spirits and rituals concerning the minds, and at the level of tropes and narratives um, about minds and finds in the minds, um, the spirits that control the minds, this has been an incredibly productive um, uh, site of cultural generation. So I want to say a little bit about a paper by Lorenzo D'Angelo, who works among artisanal diamond miners in Sierra Leone. So he talks about some of the narratives um, through which people describe the chances and mischances of the diamond find, of an individual finds an exceptionally valuable stone. One example is the story of the young man who finds an enormous stone, the biggest ever seen in the area. <coughs> Amidst tremendous excitement, he's taken to the capital city by helicopter to meet the presidents. He's accompanied by relatives and dealers, all hoping to get in on the negotiations with international traders. But when they reach the capital, and the diamond is examined by experts, it's found to be just an ordinary lump of stone. And the young man is sent back home with a small token payment. So that's, that is a kind of story with a narrative arc which reappears in lots of different contexts and has some of the kind of repeated formulaic uh, narrative tropes of a folktale, but the interpretation <coughs> goes on. What about if the experts who examined the stone were in cahoots with the big traders and were lying? What if it really was the most gigantic diamond that had ever been seen? If it wasn't, for, if, it, if this was not the case, why did they give him a token fee and send him home? <laughs> if he just brought a lump of, ah, no, this is corruption. 
they say. And this idea that it was all a kind of double scam is taken up by the Sierra Leonean rapper, Daddy Sedge, and he works it into his very um, popular and famous song, Corruption, Ye Do So. So <coughs> the translation which Lorenzo D'Angelo gives is, how can diamonds turn to stones? We get diamonds, silver and copper. Tell me, why are we still dying like poor persons? Tell me, this is corruption. So the story which emanates from the mining sites begins to circulate and turn, turns into a folkloric kind of narrative and is then taken up by an urban popular rapper and made into a moral warning of, uh, in, a, in a rap song, which then goes international and is very famous. So this is an example not just of the idea that popular culture is made, it's homemade, it's handmade, it's built from tools that are available, from materials that come to hand, but it's an example of what Marx was talking about in that original, in that letter that I quoted at the beginning, which is the idea of generation, looking at culture as something that's emergent and inchoate, which is taking shape and which grows and is added to and finds its form. So it starts maybe as somebody's real experience of disappointment. It turns into a narrative which other people can tell and quote and cite to each other. It takes on more and more body until it gets taken up by a rapper and turned into a song. So here's an idea that you can actually trace developing. It's the idea of starting from the ground and working up. And I think um, these examples of things <coughs> starting in a very informal way and emerging, developing, and being um, circulated and further developed this example happens to come from a mining site. It could have come from other sites, but it's a, it's a, uh, it's a kind of classic case of reversing the gaze, reversing the direction of the analysis. Instead of saying, I am going to study Sierra Leonean rap songs, here are some rap songs, I'm now going to transcribe them, translate them, and then explain what kind of light they shed on social reality, you're going to say, where did this thing come from? In what circumstances? What made it possible? Who made it possible? How did it get developed and circulated? I think that's... Well, I have got some more to say, but I see it's now almost six o'clock, so... <coughs> Let me just add one more thing, going back to Marx's letter. Why did Marx place so much emphasis on art? He's talking about metamorphosis <coughs> and the emergence of new things. He foregrounds the idea of a poem, but he also evokes music in the word overture, 
and painting in the word brilliant colours. And why does he place particular weight on form, proportion, measure in works of art? Well, the interpretation by S.S. Pryor is that the inherent measure or proportion of art is at once an adumbration and a promise of the unalienated state we may hope for in that better and juster future. Is not only saying that works of art, because they involve acts of imagination, can envisage alternative futures, which is one of the directions that a lot of subsequent sociology of literature has taken, um, that um, art enables us to envisage uh, a different way that society could be, could be organised. Is not only saying that, he's also saying <coughs> that the formal properties of art, what makes it into an aesthetic form, is an experience of what it would be like to be fully human and unalienated. So even in an age of alienation, even in an age when people are forced to work in mines doing backbreaking labour, or a force to tap oil and boil it on naked flames in the bush, simply to eke out a penurious existence in a state of precariousness, even in these states of intense alienation, the creation of arts may constitute a realm of comparative freedom, a realm in which man's, or we might prefer to say people's, creative urges can find an outlet worthy of their humanity. So the creation of new arts, the generation of new forms, is enabled and constrained by the specific historical circumstances in which they are generated, but arts also shape those circumstances by creating this sense of possibility and of what it would be to be fully human. So, I stop here. <laughs>